Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure. So it is a beautiful day down here in Old Saybrook. The sun came out. There's this wonderful view. We're in a place called Glade View, and there's a, a view of the marsh and the boats and the cove. And I also have a view of Prudence Allen, who is sitting here. She is a veteran of the civil rights movement, uh, and she's here to tell us some stories that go back to 1966. So let's begin by saying that you're you were a girl from Connecticut. How did you wind up down in the South? Well, I had been in sympathy with the movement for quite some time, and I heard a young man giving a talk. He was a social activist, and he said, you know, you can sit in your rocking chair and you can have all the moral thoughts and the good thoughts in the world, but if you don't get up out of your rocking chair and do something about them, you might as well have never thought them. So... When the opportunity came to volunteer for Dr. King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, to do voter registration in southwest Georgia, I volunteered. How old were you? I was about 22. And, and what were you doing? Were you a college student at the time? And you... Yes. I was um, at Colby College working on a degree. So you got on a bus or something like that and and went down there? Actually, I flew down Mm. on on an airplane, and I went to Freedom House Atlanta, and then everything changed. (laughs) While we were getting ready to do the voter registration in southwest Georgia, James Meredith got shot. And to me, that was the textbook example of how counterproductive violence is. The gentleman that shot James Meredith obviously didn't want him walking down the road in Mississippi. But at the time, Meredith only had about four or five people with him. And as soon as this man shot Meredith down, Hundreds shows up. Dr. King showed up. Floyd McKissick showed up. Stokely Carmichael showed up. All the, all the civil rights activists that could possibly get there. So now, instead of just a handful of people, he had hundreds going through the state of Mississippi. And I'm sure that he didn't want the birth announcement of the Black Power Movement In Greenwood at that point, it was just, to me, totally counterproductive and 
to me, violence always is counterproductive. So this is 1966, and uh, as Prudence is saying, the uh, James Meredith had started on what was almost a solo march to call attention to inequality, to the to segregation, to the deprivation of, of basic rights for blacks in America. He was shot. He was hospitalized, and as you're saying, that opened the floodgates for a group of people. So do you remember what you saw, what you felt, what the the sights and sounds and feelings were when you got to Mississippi? Uh, Yes, I do. But before we get to Mississippi, I need to share with you what was a watershed event for me. You have to understand the context. In 1962, Oxford, Mississippi went into open insurrection when Meredith tried to enter Old Miss. Mm-hmm. In 1964, Schwerman, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were killed in Philadelphia. And now here we are, 1966, two, uh, two years later, and Meredith has been shot. Mm-hmm. We had no clue what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. We just knew that this was a serious place. So we're getting ready to leave Atlanta, And our field staff boss is giving us our driving orders. We're going in a convoy of cars, and we'll travel in segregated cars. I was totally shocked, you know. Hey, we're for integration. Why aren't we going to model what we're for? It was patiently explained to me that we could very well be attacked and harmed very seriously, maybe even killed, who knows, if we traveled in integrated cars. So... That's when it hit me. I was not free in my own country to travel with a mixed group of co-workers, and that was the point that I realized that this needed to become personal for me. So that's how we started out, and we ended up in Mississippi. I'll give you a brief look at what it was like. You need to picture miles and miles of totally flat land with no shade, hot Mississippi midsummer sun, and hundreds of us have been plunked down in the middle of this. First thing we need is medical support. You know, you've got chubby little white Connecticut girls like me, you know, with fair skin, sunburn, possible heat stroke. You know, you've got everything from twisted ankles to you name it, blisters. So we need the medical support. And we also needed to have tents to sleep in at night. So we had tent trucks and front men that would go ahead and put our tents. The next thing we needed is water trucks to truck truck the water so that, you know, we could not get dehydrated on a day's march. And we also needed a fleet of cars because no matter how strong you are and good a marcher you are, you know, you're not going to march eight hours straight. You need brakes. Cars would come by and we would hop in the car and they'd run us to the front and we'd get about a 10 or 15 minute break while they drove us ahead. This was how they kept us going during the day. And then, of course, when we got to our destination at night, we needed to have people arranged so that we can have something to eat. And sometimes that was very lovely. The uh, ladies of the black community churches would lay out a nice dinner for us. And sometimes there wasn't that much. I remember one night, all we had was a bologna sandwich. 
but that was that was the way it was in Mississippi at the time. Well, I'm also guessing that there were probably people along the way who weren't eager to help you. In other words, I would assume there were Mississippi whites along this route who didn't want you to be able to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water. Well, we didn't encounter a lot of them because it was such barren open land, mainly farmhouses sitting on large acreages, and they wouldn't be lining the road. It was so desolate out there for the most part. The first thing that is of importance was when we went into Greenwood, Mississippi. This was where we had the announcement of the Black Power Movement. Now, it's my understanding Stokely Carmichael had been taken away and detained for the afternoon. And while we were in Greenwood, a student nonviolent coordinating committee young man by the name of Willie Ricks, He talked to all of us, and he sort of foreshadowed the whole thing. And when Stokely Carmichael finally returned that late afternoon, I did hear Mr. Ricks say, Stokely, you've got to do it tonight. The people are ready. So that night, all of us gathered around, and Stokely Carmichael gave a thoughtful speech about what he meant by financial power, political power, social power, and all the things that he felt the movement should be working on. This whole time he was speaking, the TV cameras and the TV lights were absolutely dead. But when he came to the last sentence of his speech, which was, that's what I mean by black power, all the lights went on for the 30-second soundbite. Mm -hmm. And I've been totally unimpressed by 30-second sound bites ever since then. <laughs> what was it like for you to be, I'm, I'm assuming that the number of white people in this march was oh, a relatively I'm... small one. Maybe you can talk about what, what that was like. Well, uh, we were quite a mixed group, and it wasn't a matter of feeling like we were outsiders. We were there because we were for the, the movement. Mm-hmm. And we were accepted pretty much that way. Of course, I was not too many weeks down in, there in, in the South, but our co-workers, they pretty well accepted us. Every once in a while, you know, there was a little bit of, you're down here for the short term, and we're, we're in this for the rest of our lives. And by that time, I realized that it was my, my fight, my freedom I was fighting for. So I expected to be in it for the long term. Mm. And that got through. Pretty much when that got through, there was no trouble with acceptance. Mm. So you're from Old Lyme, Connecticut, uh, a very different world from the place that you were in, found yourself in. And when you got to Canton, Mississippi, uh, things got a little less peaceful. In order to understand what happened in Canton, you have to picture that Canton was divided into three. It was the black segregated community. It was the white community. And then that was totally in between. And then the third section was all the town amenities, like the town park and things like that. And the town fathers in Canton, they figured they'd fix us when we were asked for our parade permit, oh, yeah, sure, you can parade over in the, in the town park over here. 
which meant that in order for anybody from the black community to get to us, to converse with us, they would have to go at danger to themselves through the white community. So the black leaders in the Canton community asked us, well, we have this segregated school over here and the, the school ground. We want you to come to the school ground. And the leaders decided that we're here for the community. So we sent our front men ahead. They were starting to pitch the tents, and they were immediately arrested. And at that point, of course, we weren't going to leave our, our front men hanging there, so we immediately trucked into the school grounds, and we were going to take up the tent, and we were going to pitch it. And so we we were starting, uh, you know, pulling on the ropes and chanting, we're going to pitch the tent, we're going to pitch the tent. And then the Mississippi State Troopers were lined up upwind from us, as they always would be if they're going to use tear gas, they always line up upwind because they don't want it blown out back at themselves. And for some strange reason, I was in the front row, and that turned out to be a good thing. I could look across about 100 feet of empty grass, and there were the troopers, and they started announcing, you know, you need to clear the field, or basically we're going to clear it for you. And um, this is how naive I was. They started reaching behind their backs, and I said, what, are they fixing bayonets? What's going on? Well, actually, they were reaching for their tear gas grenades. At that point, we were all standing steady and everything, and then they started shooting the tear gas. And I learned later that what they had done was taken our medical support group and asked them to stand aside, and they tear gassed them first. But then the tear gas is flying, and my immediate understanding when I first breathed the tear gas was that I'm going to die if I keep breathing this. I have to get out of this. I tried going down low because I was told that the, um, the, the gas would rise. This gas did not rise. It had something in it that kept it low. So my only other option, and here's where I was so fortunate. For some reason or other, instead of running away from the troopers, I chose to run parallel to the troopers. And that meant that the breeze was sweeping the, the gas away from me fairly quickly. As soon as I got out of the gas, I was on the ground, retching and dry heaving. And I'm hearing this woman scream, get up, quick, run, hurry, into the house. And I oh, she sounds serious. I think I'll do what she says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a co-marcher co helped me up, and we ran across the street. I learned later that had I not been up that quickly, I was just shy of being nailed by the first billy club. Mm -hmm. The woman was ready to protect us, stand in her door, tell the police they couldn't come after us without a warrant, and so we were, we were protected that way. Um, but in later reports, it did turn out to be a pretty rough, rough afternoon for us. Um, what was it like the next day? I mean, after something like that happened to me, I would be thinking, well, maybe it's time to go back to Connecticut. I mean, what was it, what was it like to rejoin the activities the next day? 
<laughs> oh no, that would have be, been the last thing. And you know, we were there, and we were ready to dig in. <laughs> in fact, in in some ways, we were felt a little bit let down. Apparently, some of the community leaders, I guess, decided that they didn't didn't want to pursue a, a lengthy open confrontation in the town there. One of the things that happened after the Black Power thing, we started to have among the marchers almost nightly discussions. Are we going to continue nonviolent, or are we going to be physically a little bit more aggressive? And we began to we began to realize that there is a distinct difference between a nonviolent philosopher and a nonviolent tactician. The philosopher takes it up as a philosophy of life and intends to live nonviolently in all their affairs. The nonviolent tactician says, okay, for these few hours at this particular demonstration, we will be nonviolent because we see that it might be strategically effective. But once the demonstration's over, if I'm riding home, I still have my 38 under my car seat. <laughs> so there was a vast difference, and it was a little unnerving to know that we had some of each behind us, and we couldn't really count on whether some of the tacticians might, you know, start something that would get the rest of us in real trouble. That seems like a great place for us to take a little pause here, to take a little break. Uh, we're talking to Prudence Allen. We are down here in Old Saybrook uh, on a lovely day. And we'll take a break. We're talking about the events of 1966, uh, about the marches in Mississippi. Uh, we'll be telling you more stories about Prudence and her relationship with Martin Luther King and his family after this. Long time coming, but I know we're talking to Prudence Allen. She marched in Mississippi in the years leading up to the landmark Civil Rights Act. Uh, and she's going to tell us more about that and more about uh, Martin Luther King. We're taping this just a few days before Martin Luther King Day. So, um, Prudence, as we were wrapping up in the previous segment, you were talking about the philosophical differences about how this was going to proceed. And so you were obviously committed to really the Martin Luther King vision of total nonviolence. And I assume it was a, a daily struggle on the march to maintain that attitude if there were other people agitating for a different way of approaching this. You're absolutely right. And it really came into to a head when we got to Jackson and we were getting ready to march into Jackson that morning. And our field staff boss gathered all of us SCL people together and said, okay, I'm putting line marshals armbands on every single one of you. And your responsibility is to keep your section of line nonviolent. And I'm saying, I've only been here a couple of weeks, and you want me to <laughs> want me to handle this? But I did realize that, you know, we were supposed to do that, and I was very, very fortunate. I have a fairly powerful voice, so 
whenever my section of the line started to try and talk a little bit more aggressive or violent phrases or whatever, I just started another freedom song. And fortunately, the largest number of the people in my section of the line followed suit. So we got into there keeping our section of the line fairly well. And I don't know how I ended up front row dead center again at the Capitol. Now, what you need to picture at this time is as we had marched through Jackson, we had picked up thousands. So now we're coming into the back of the state capitol in Jackson, and the state troopers are lined up protecting the back of the capitol. And the next thing, as these thousands of people are coming in behind, suddenly all of us are being shoved right against the trooper line. Hmm. And I know I was front row dead center because the trooper directly in front of me was the tallest dude, (laughs) and he was the biggest, strongest dude in the line, anchoring the line in the middle. And I was staring at his belt buckle. (laughs) You know, that's how tall he was. And there was no hundred feet of grass between us. I was being shoved right up against this trooper. As the thousands kept coming and pushing, I'm looking up, and I'm seeing him, and he has his arms linked with his brother officers, And I'm looking up, and his face is turning red. The cords in his neck are standing out like you wouldn't believe. And he's just, okay, I'm trying as hard as I can. You know, you could see. You could see it. He was trying as hard as he could. Maximum strength. And then I saw his hand reach for his billy club. And then he said, I'll try a little harder. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many times, but I think it was at least three or four times that I saw that hand start to go for the billy club and him, I'm going to try harder again. And, of course, in nonviolence, you realize that the other person has their point, too. And his point was that he was bound by duty to keep us from getting into the back of the the state capitol. So... We had to understand where he was coming from. And by that time, I was praying, you know, oh, God, tell us what the nonviolent thing to do is, because I wasn't coming up with it. Well, our leaders knew, and over the PA system came the voice, let the people sit down. And we started to get first a narrow line, and then gradually everybody sat down. And we were able to have our speeches and everything. And um, it didn't dawn on me how effective we had been until a couple of hours later when the demonstration was starting to break up. That very officer had been struggling with whether or not he was going to billy club us, walked over to me and said, We have a situation that might be developing down there on the street. There's some marchers sitting on a car, and if it's not their car and the owner of the car, there might be an incident. Would you rather take care of it or shall I? And, you know, in that amount of time, we had earned that much respect that 
the officers came to us and respected us enough and trusted us enough to say, you can handle that in your way if you would like. And that was, to me, a really powerful lesson in the power of nonviolence. I just, um, you know, I cannot forget that. Well, that that was a, a trooper who was bound by the rules of his job and how he understood the rules of his job. Yeah. Now, as your time in the Deep South progressed, you began to run into people who were not similarly bound by rules, and many of them were dressed in white. So tell us about your first encounters with the Klan. With the KKK. Yes, this was after we all went back to Atlanta, and we had heard that the Ku Klux Klan was going to do a march in Atlanta, and they had decided, I guess they'd been taking it on the chin for always marching with their masks and everything. So they were going to march without masks in Atlanta that day. And we wanted to have our little nonviolent protest. And they, too, were going to the state capitol in Atlanta. And we were across the street. And I can't tell you what it was like to look down the street and have the Klan turn the corner, hundreds strong, in their full regalia. And the scariest thing of all was that there were four-year-olds in full regalia, six-year-olds, in full, babes in arms in full regalia. You know, they're starting to teach these children hatred so young. This is really scary. Anyway, the Klan came, they started with their speech, speeches, and the first speech started out with the speaker pointed across the street to where we were and said, that's scum over there. <laughs> and I remember my reactions very well. My first reaction, who's calling me scum? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the Klan. Mm-hmm. All right, we're cool. If the Klan's calling me scum, I must be doing something right. <laughs> so now, a couple of hours later, they've finished, they're coming to their last of their speeches. And the last speaker gets up. And his big thing was the politicians that would tell the Klan one thing and then sell them out behind closed doors later. And so... Almost the first words out of his mouth after talking about, I have more respect for that scum over there than I have for the politicians. (laughs) And there again, it was the tiniest little shift. We were now not at the bottom of the heap. We were above the politicians. (laughs) And having made that seismic little shift, they could not go back. They had announced it to hundreds over the PA, and we would never be on the bottom of the heap again. And that's, that may not seem like much, but that's how nonviolence works sometimes, is you just make a small amount of headway, but it can't be gone back on. Were you afraid in those situations that it would become violent? Well, actually, you sort of realize that, yeah, it's scary and something something might happen to me, but 
the consolation, particularly in Canton, I felt this was that uh, you know, no matter what happens to me today, at least I've stood for something. And that was the consolation. So you knew you were standing for something worthwhile, and that sort of allayed the fear to a great extent. Where do you think that came from in a 22-year-old white girl from Old Lyme, Connecticut? I mean, were you raised in a church that taught you that kind of thinking? Did your parents give it to you? Where did it come from? I do know that when I was a very, very young girl, I was about four years old, when Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated. And my grandmother and my father had talked to me about what a wonderful human being he was to nonviolently work to free his country of India. And when he got shot, I was totally puzzled. And I asked my dad, I said, well, wasn't he a good man? Why would anybody want to shoot a good man? And my father said to me, I don't know. But that stuck with me. I knew that nonviolence was important and powerful. And I guess I just grew up to continue to believe that. And, of course, what Dr. King had been doing for years just solidified that. You know, I mean, his movement had been going on since Montgomery and all of it, uh, you know, very, very well publicized. And as I say, I was a Johnny-come-lately because, you know, I'd been in sympathy all of those, all of those years. So anyway. All right. Why don't we take a quick break here? Uh, and we're going to come back. We're talking to Prudence Allen. She was an activist with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, leading up to the Civil Rights Act and a friend to the family of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. We'll tell you more about that when we come back. was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Special thanks to Bobby Dooley and his mom. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Calling, and our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Clayton Powell. For show pages, articles, and photos, go to our website, wnpr.org slash calling. On tomorrow's show, her name is Barbara, a deep dive into all things Streisand. And now, back to Colin. We're down here in Old Saybrook uh, on a beautiful day, just a few days before Martin Luther King Day. I'm talking to Prudence Allen. Uh, she's here in a place called Glade View with a lovely view of the marsh and boats in a cove. And we're remembering together. She's remembering 1966 and the events that followed. Uh, you've heard her talk already about the March Against Fear, as it was known, the march launched by James Meredith before he was shot, the march that was joined by thousands and thousands of protesters. I want to talk to you a little bit more about how you came to know Martin Luther King and, and, and his family. How, how did it happen that you uh, came in close contact with the family of Martin Luther King? Well, of course, we had staff retreats. And I first met him in person at a staff retreat in Frogmore. But later on, 
after I'd been doing some work in Southwest Georgia and all, I found out that Mrs. King needed a secretary, and I applied, and I happened to make it. Mm. <laughs> so, so I became her secretary for about eight months, and uh, it was quite an amazing thing to get to know Mrs. King and the children. Mrs. King was one of the most gracious, dignified ladies you could ever imagine, and uh, I, I very much admired her and enjoyed working with her. And the children were children, mm. <laughs> six years old on and on up. Um, Dr. King, of course, was on the road a lot, so it was always an event when he arrived home. And I know that you saw a lot of comings and goings there, including people like um, Harry Belafonte, right? That wasn't until 1968. I left to come back to college in the early fall of 1967. But at that time, I knew uh, Mrs. King had sat me down and she had told me about how Dr. King had set her down when Jack Kennedy was shot and told her, you know that's what's going to happen to me. And so I went north to continue my college knowing that if anything like that happened, I would immediately return to Atlanta to be with Mrs. King and do what I could under the circumstances. And that's what happened in 1968 when he was shot. I got the first plane I could and was down there and in the King home. And they set up a cot for me in the family room. (laughs) And I spent the next few days through the funeral there. It was quite quite something. I was there when Bob, Bobby and Ethel Kennedy arrived, and they, they came. And this was after Bobby had gone into a crowd in an African-American community, and he took the mic and said, I understand how you feel because I've had a brother shot. And Bobby had the creds to do that. Mm-hmm. He could do that. Um, and but by the by the time I saw him that evening, he and Ethel were absolutely exhausted, and um, you know it was just, I mean, it was just something that they were there, and they still had places to go after they left that evening, and uh, but I I still remember how tired and exhausted they were from all that had been going on, and. Um, and people like, uh, well, Richard Nixon showed up, um, and uh, and of course, Harry Belafonte. A lot of people, um, you know, are just beginning to realize what a stalwart. Many times behind the scenes, sometimes in front, but he he was absolutely um, an amazing force at this point. And uh, I guess the. The biggest thing that I remember about when I had been Mrs. King's secretary, whenever she took off on a trip, I always said, God keep you, Mrs. King. Well, on this day, when she and Harry Belafonte were getting ready to go down to Memphis and pick up the casket and bring it back, I just, I suddenly had this moment of 
a real uh, fear for her. And so when I said, God keep you, Mrs. King, it was with extra fervor. Mm. And I had no intention, but what happened was the whole room froze. Everybody froze. And bless Harry Belafonte's heart. He knew that the room couldn't be left that way. So Harry Belafonte reared back and said, well, isn't anybody going to say, God keep me? (laughs) And, And, you know, I am grateful to him to this day. And so I said, oh, all right, God keep you too. (laughs) <laughs> and the room was able to loosen up because of that. And, uh, you know, I still think, uh, you know, thank goodness um, he knew better than to leave us all that way. Um, well, you know, there um, was obviously a lot of tension at that time, and it, it did seem as though Dr. King almost tried to prepare not only his family— but the world for the possibility that this would happen. And and the day before, I think, was the day that he gave the speech that said, I've been to the mountain. mountain. Yeah, he said, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but it doesn't matter because I've been to the mountain. So I assume you you interpret that to mean that he really did, he knew something like this was probably going to happen, and he wanted his people to react to it the way that he had taught them to react to everything else? Yeah. Yeah. that definitely, um, that speech definitely foreshadowed and everything. And um, of course, I wasn't down there when he gave that speech in Memphis, but um, I, I arrived after that. And beyond that, the the whole funeral. I mean, hundred thousand people marching through the streets of Atlanta, um, and all all that went on there. Um, and there's not that much more that I experienced because shortly after the funeral, I came back up and continued with college. But um, uh, it definitely was a, a momentous time to be there and to see um, how Mrs. King reacted and and everything and you know, the people that came and, you know, the, the large part of what was going on there was we were getting duffel bags of of um, telegrams and letters and everything and a, a lot of a lot of sitting there just sorting all the things that were coming in and um, and all. So, um, well. What you haven't really said is what it did to you emotionally. Were you crying? Were you angry? Did it test your own commitment to nonviolence to 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 see the leader struck down that way? Well, when it when it hit me, um, when they were when they were having um, the the viewing hours, and we, uh, I went with a couple of other people, and we went. And as we walked past the casket, um, and I saw him in the casket, and then, uh, you know, we were able to go to a quiet area afterwards, and that's when I just broke down and lost it because, um, uh, you know, the sight of somebody that, um, I mean, you knew his, his, you knew Part of his face had been hit and and everything, and 
you know, just the idea that this man had been shot down like that um, and so young. Mm. You, you know, there was just so much. But I, I did. I, I broke down quite, quite a bit at that point. But then you, you pulled it back together again because, you know, there were, you know, there were things that needed to be done, and, and you did what you could. Um, ten years later, you found yourself back in a similar role, right? Was it with Vista this time? Yeah, I um, I applied to Vista Peace Corps, and I you know I had fantasies of being sent somewhere really fascinating like India or whatever. No, they looked at my application and said we're sending her right back down to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing for me was here we're 1978. Ten years later, we arrive in a. Um, what's called Noxubee County, Mississippi, and I get to see what what the conditions are in Noxubee ten years later, and it blew me away. You went to the local gas station, and the black man came out and pumped the gas, and the white man came out and took your money. You went to the local ice cream parlor. And they still had the outside window and 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 the inside for for the the white folks supposedly and the these were these were just the way things are were there, and it was amazing and I also learned that the school system well instead of integrating the schools. Every single white family that could put their children in private schools, which meant that the private schools were only funded by by family tuition fees, and the parents had to carpool their children, no public tr- transportation to the private schools. It, and it was just like, talk about, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face that these children were missing out. And the time came. I had been working on a Head Start project. Came summer, Head Start closes. So the next idea was, well, find something to do for summer summer programs. So what does a little girl from Connecticut do? Go down to the local library and walk in and ask the librarian, well, do you have summer reading programs for the children? And her answer floored me. She said, no, the library board's afraid the little black children might find out about it and want to come. Do you have story hours for children? No, the library board's afraid the little black children might find out about it and want to come. Does this library receive general revenue sharing funds? Yep, $5,000 a year. I walked out, I went back to the community, and I said, do we have a family here whose children have been denied use of this library? Yep. Are you willing to go to court and testify? Yep. I had my ducks in a row, and I happened to know 
where the next County Board of Supervisors meeting would be to discuss the use of general revenue sharing funds. They tried to keep people ignorant. By They had to pub, publicly post it, but they had this tiny little index card side thing on the post office wall way below even my eye level. And, of course, if, number one, if you're illiterate, and number two, you're not even looking that low for it. So anyway, they tried to keep people ignorant, but I found out about it. So I showed up at the Board of Supervisors meeting, and I jumped up, and I said, we will have community representation on the library board. We will have integration of the library. And I wanted public hours posted, too, but that was a minor thing. Otherwise, I will file an administrative procedure. And the Board of Supervisors said, oh, oh, well, well we just won't give that $5,000 to the library. I said, that won't cut it. All we have to prove was that that was the policy while the library was receiving that money. And their own legal man put his head in his hands and says, that's right. <laughs> And, of course, the thing there was that I wouldn't just lose them their $5,000. They had a total budget of $95,000, which in a town that tiny was huge. And it would all be gone out the window. And within 24 hours, they sought me out and said, you've got the library board member from the community. You bring the children in any time. And... You know, but it was amazing to me because there again, cut off your nose to spite your face. The little white children couldn't have story hours. The little white children couldn't have summer reading programs. The statement is you can't keep somebody down unless you stay down there with them. That seems that seems to be the lesson over and over again. Really, that you know, from the time of shooting James Meredith, which further uh, incentivized people to march, yes. to using tear gas, which deepened your convictions mm-hmm. that you had to stay and see this through, mm-hmm. to these these things that they do that are so counterproductive, yeah. creating segregated systems which actually deprive their own children yeah. of of using town services. Yeah. So. Prudence Allen, as you look at America now, we've been through a very difficult year or or 18 months. We've had Ferguson. We've had Baltimore. We've had Staten Island. uh, We've had Charleston. There must be part of you that's thinking, well, does anything ever change? Well, um, I definitely, uh, when Charleston happened, uh, you know, my reaction is, we still have so far to go. We still have so far to go. But one of the things that hits me now is that part of what has to happen is that white people have to realize they're not free. I had my wake-up call when I found out, uh, you know, I couldn't ride with in a mixed car. I couldn't walk down a street in southwest Georgia without with a community member without being kicked out of town before I'd even had time to learn the name of the town. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't free. And I realize now white people grow up with privilege, and that 
keeps them from realizing that they aren't free. I mean, when I was growing up, I was um, graduated from middle school, and there was a choice. Do I go to this high school over here or this vastly superior high school over there? There wasn't any question. Nobody blinked an eye. Basically, what it was was do not pass go, do not collect $200, proceed immediately to the superior school. Nothing nothing to, to give me any idea that I wasn't free in a circumstance like that. But my understanding now is that I wasn't free from peer pressure. I wasn't free from my own prejudices. I wasn't free from my own fears until I paid my dues down there and lost a lot of that. And I think that's, that's one of the processes that has to start happening now. And it took hundreds of years before we moved from slavery to the point where the country could elect a President Obama. And hopefully it's not going to take hundreds of years before white people gain a little freedom from, from all those things that are constricting them and making them not as free as they really think they are. I think we'll end there. Prudence Allen, So thank you so much for sharing your time and your memories with us. Thank you for having me, and I, I certainly hope that a little bit of the nonviolence that Dr. King was such a proponent of maybe, maybe will sift out there. At a mighty hard time Coming out of us You know my soul Look back and wonder How did we make it over Tell me how we got over love. I've been falling and rising All these years But you know my soul Back and wonder, how did I make it over?